Club members. I'm Jen Bozier. And I'm Carrie Honey. And this is Warhammer 40k Book Club, where we read from a crag. This is episode number 24, and our book is The Hollow Mountain by Chris Raitt. The book is about our favorite inquisitor, Crowell, and his interrogator, Spinoza, as they continue to investigate the Xenos plot from the first book, The Carrion Throne. The Xenos plot that failed. (laughs) Awkward. (laughs) We posted several questions on our website, wh40kbookclub.com, and we encourage participation in our discussions via Twitter, YouTube, the site, or Encrypted Box channel. Spoiler warning. If you haven't yet read the book, go to the site, check out the book and the questions, and then come back to this episode as we'll be discussing the book from start to finish in great detail. With that, let's dive in. Can we have like a brief moment here? Because I'm sure. still sad. Oh. Yeah, poor. Y'all hadn't poor heard out. the news. Adepticon has been canceled. So, and like, Jen and sad. I like pulled like last minute strings <laughs> to go. Sad Thelma and Louise noises. Yes. We were going to drive from Denver to Chicago. We were so excited and stoked because this is my jam driving for 14 hours. I'm not kidding. Um, And we did, like, we moved to heaven and earth so we could go to this because it was going to be so cool. And anyways, instead of drinking with lovely people in person, we'll just have to drink. Yep. Pour one out, people. Cheers, Jen. Cheers, Carrie. So, diving in, did you like the book? I did. I really did. I really liked it. I I really liked the first one, and I think I'd even said after we finished it that I was like, oh my god, I cannot wait to read the sequel to this, and it did not disappoint. Now, I'm just so happy that we actually have our Jack Ryan. <laughs> yes! Inquisitors. I mean, I guess Ravener kind of was, but he's in a box, so it's not so sexy and cool. Sorry, Ravener. Well, and Ravener, Ravener also had, I don't know how to explain it, but Ravener was like, he was looking at larger scale stuff. He was traveling to all these different planets and doing all this different stuff. Whereas, oddly enough, even though we're talking about Warhammer 40k a little far away from now, he's on terra so the fact that despite the fact that earth is like big the fact that he's in one planet one location kind of makes it feel a little more relatable and a little more digestible like one of the things that i always talk about with superhero movies is that i hate the continual escalation of we've saved the world the country now we have to save the world now we have to save the universe now we have to save all of life like it, it was one of the reasons that I liked the um, Spider-Man Homecoming so much is that bring it back right. down to a smaller level. He was being a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Friendly neighborhood Inquisitor. There's nothing Aww. friendly about the Inquisition, just so we're clear. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was. It feels a little bit more, and he's it's more targeted because he has the specific thing. So what part of the book really stood out to you? What parts? Because I know we both have a lot. Um probably the part that stood out the most to me was um huck when the uh enemy kind of came in and she was all like can i help you gentlemen and he was trying to talk to them very nicely and then they pointed a gun at her and she's like well 
try to be polite and then she just summons like servitors from hell just to come and take over and she's just kind of sitting back there and laughing and watching it all i liked so many of the scenes with huck when she executes that guy and she's like still got it right oh my god i laughed so hard oh my gosh yeah well because it was this character who you inherently felt really bad for her because she was the savant who could no longer savant really the majority of her powers and her skills that were taken from her just actually they don't really describe how now it sounded like she kind of went crazy it does a little bit and so like does... she was chained down there for her own good yeah because he mentions that there was an incident mm -hmm. and i do know that she should have been put to death but carl didn't so i don't know i always felt kind of bad for her and then she has this moment which was then matched by her realizing, yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, I really loved Huckstein's. I, my favorite character in these books remains Gorgias. The scene that stood out to me, it's on page 165. It's when, it's after Crowell has shot that Magister's whatever tank, which you guys, so one of like my irrational fears is I don't like dirty water. So like, you'll never see me swimming in a lake or anything like that. Like, cause if I can't see the bottom, mm -mm, not getting in it. Uh, so whenever they describe those vats of liquids for like the navigators and the princeps and this magister, it just. Or dreadnoughts. Yeah. The, the princeps. Oh Yeah. Oh, God, um, yeah, the dreadnoughts. I just, you guys, it gives me the heebie-jeebies so not badly. Not only that, but he was, I was already cringing because when he's climbing through that muck and he's talking about he's got that gelatinous stuff already <gasps> all over him. Oh, God. Oh, God. I will say, Chris Wright has two talents that I love. One, he writes a very good mystery. And two, he really knows how to zone in on the gross stuff because... I think we both said that one of our favorite scenes so far all year is when the Lords of Silence literally shit on the Mechanicus. That's so, so funny to me. Disgusting. That was, oh, I, yeah. As you know, as disgusting as that was, I don't know what can top that because that was just so brilliantly written, and I just loved how blasé the Death Guard were about it. Just like, well. What we As got. one does. Right. But so my favorite scene was after he shoots that tank open and it says, amid the roar and foaming, he was dimly aware of Gorgias riding high above it all, shrieking something, as always, about traitors and vengeance. It just, it added to the insanity of the scene and you can picture it so well, right? Like all this nasty stuff coming out and his skull riding up high, <laughs> screaming in high gothic, no doubt, about traitors and vengeance. It just, he always, and that's another thing that I really like about Chris Ray, is he has a really nice sense of humor that kind of rolls through everything. And it's and it balanced. It's so well balanced. Because I really liked it, you know, Lords of Silence, like, again, the literal shitting on the Tech Marine ship. Okay. It was humorous, but he executed that in a way where it was just like so nonchalant and like it was not supposed to be humorous. But yes. seriously, it's humorous. You, 
There's no like no other way way around that. Or you mm-hmm. know like the whole scene in Watchers of the Throne, the first book, when Alea is basically like signing to uh, the guy, just like get out. And he's like, oh hey, I can read that. And she's like, oh wait, what? <laughs> like you can go on. The other scene that made me laugh really hard was actually in the beginning of campaign um, when they go to talk to Heinwolf mm. uh, when Revis when Revis does. And Heinwolf says, I could ask perhaps why I might be concerned if some feud between your agencies were to find its way down here. And Revis says, it's nothing to worry about. And Heinwolf says, see, now I'm concerned. <laughs> it's so wonderful. Like I even wrote, I think all I, all I wrote in my book was just, ha. <laughs> there's well, really good humor. And it's like there was, you know, another thing when, when Crowell was um, imitating that inspector and, you know, he's all talking uh, I forget who that guy's name is. It doesn't matter, but he, when he, his realization is like, Calavine, the inspector, had been an irritable man. Mimicking him proved rather enjoyable. In which I could totally just envision him just acting this petty. <laughs> oh, yeah, just leaning into it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, well, this guy's a jerk anyways, so might as well enjoy myself. Yeah, I... There were so many just little scenes and little conversations. I think the part that can't be not discussed is the fact that you might have thought Lou Spinoza was a badass. Like, you might have thought that. But then she has the Imperial Fists on speed dial. <laughs> when the Imperial Fist shows up and he's, she's like, an oath was sworn. And he's like, to you? She's like, oh, Yes. Also, this fucking beacon. Am I right? I just liked how they literally swooped in the windows like the FBI. As much as like, you know, imperial fists open up. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I. There was something. It was so like inspiring because you're reading the scene and you're just like, oh my god, yes, this is amazing. But there was also something humorous about it, right? Because you can all of a sudden, I mean. They're on their last limbs. They think they're going to die. All hope is lost. And then whoosh, in come the space marines. I do have to ask. Amazing. What's going on with the Imperial Fists? We see them a lot lately, considering they hadn't been around much before the rift. Right. Um, usually, I find them to be rather dull. Again, I dare you to name the main character of Apocalypse. Um, Crap. (laughs) Challenge, not accepted. Uh, They're generally kind of dull. And these guys are fun, actually, because the way they just bust in and they're like, all right, try to keep up. Let's go. It was so great. Uh, And the one guy, oh, when the guy tells Rebus that you are a true servant of the throne. Yeah, you do like, honor to the throne. Yeah. He's like, Revis, just... like, Revis grew three inches that day. That's right. <laughs> Revis is like, yes, I, I do. do how I you... do honor the throne, damn it. So amazing. I really liked their use in here. Um, mm-hmm. Which, again, that, that says something, right? Since I'm not a big Imperial Fist fan either. But I agree that that was also my first... I mean, it makes sense because you're on Terra and they've already established that she has a relationship with the Imperial Fist, so it does make sense. But yeah, I had the first thought too. I was like, those Imperial Fists are so hot right now. 
Well, it's also making me wonder. Yellow. So, so yeah, so she has them on speed dial, but there has to be a faction on Terra. Because it's not like they could just suddenly appear. Oh, yeah, no, there's. No, they have some, they have a, they have people stationed there. Just not a lot because of the whole Horus heresy thing. Well, I guess someone's got to man them walls. (laughs) And build them. Mm -hmm. So that the custodians can feel safe. That's right. In their golden armor and their black cloaks. And their bitter attitudes. (laughs) Yes. I thought that was just delightful. It was, it made me, it just, yeah, there was something about that scene. So many little scenes like that, like with Huck and there were, I feel as though reading this book, I was like, so many times. (laughs) That was pretty much current mood. So one of the things that really stood out to me about this book that I find very interesting, Crowell is a very gray thinker right he's been on Terra a long time he's been an inquisitor for a long time he has seen some shit yet his two highest ranking most trusted people are Rivas and Spinoza who are very black and white people they are very rigid and stern and rules driven it's interesting to me that Crowell would surround himself with them my thoughts on that that's a couple of things one i can see him be like here are his checks and balances you know make sure he doesn't go too like almost to the white mm-hmm. um but also i'm more of like if he's just kind of hoping like i know with you know because we know he's dying and you know he in a, his own way he is grooming spinoza to take his place to mm-hmm. become inquisitor and take his place so i'm wondering if he you know he had He's already gone over his reasons for, for choosing her, but I think one of the reasons why he's staying with her is because, mm-hmm. like, he's like, I can work with her to kind of bend her a little so that she's not so black and white. Because, like, like they keep saying, this is Terra. You can't be that black and white and survive on Terra. So I and think, yet... so I think that's why he kind of has them in a way. He's, you know, it's almost like an education for both sides so keeping him in check and yet in their understanding a little bit of where we don't have to be that harsh like we don't need to go that far into it Mm -hmm. and yet the thing i find interesting is that revis is very much a look whatever it takes to the imperium we just whatever it takes he's very strict into that whole idea that we serve the imperium and we do whatever it takes Spinoza is a different type of strictness. They're almost like opposite sides of the mm-hmm. same coin, where she is very rigid, she is very rules-driven, but also in the there are some lines that we don't cross. Like when Crowell says that he wants to keep investigating the Sinos plot and that he knows that this goes all the way to the top, Spinoza immediately is like, but the Lex. So this idea that we need, like, yeah, we need to discover, find, root out heresy, but there are rules in place for this. So she's almost that opposite of Rebus, which, again, clearly a very much needed counterweight to Crowl. Mm-hmm. And he needs both of those. He does. Because I, I would guess I would say that, you know, um, we'll say that Rebus is black and Spinoza is white. Yeah, I would and say so, that's accurate. And so, accurate. you know, and obviously Crowell's in between and they help him stay in between 
and not go mm-hmm. one way or the other too far. Yeah, I would say that's pretty accurate. So one of the things I really want to talk about, because I think it's arguably, despite this whole Xenos plot and Inquisitors and Imperial Fists and all of this, large swaths of this book and Carrion Throne were devoted to how Terra and the Imperium works. So we're going to break this down into two parts. One is the industry and the mechanics of Terra. What keeps the wheels turning in this giant machine? What surprises or stands out to you? Okay, I got a, I got a confession to make with this. I was thoroughly annoyed by this. There were so many times I forgot whose part I was even on because it was going into so detailed in this. And let me tell you what it reminded me of. The unabridged Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. Now, it's not as bad because I didn't have to read 200 pages about the Battle of Waterloo to understand one point that he makes a couple chapters later. But it's not too far from that. This is the point. It's like, oh, like I would really glaze over most of it. And then, of course, then something would come up that reference back to it. And like, son of a bitch, this is Victor Hugo all over again. And I didn't appreciate that back then. My difference is like this is not fifteen hundred pages, but so now I, I. So the funny thing for me, remind I me of the stand. Edit this shit. The unabridged stand is probably so. I really like some of the stuff, like the vellum things. So the thing for me with vellum is, as I was reading it, I used to work for a company that worked with very high end papers. In the United States, we have been using a method. If you've ever, if you actually if you've ever seen vellum we've been using the method the japanese method for making vellum since like the 60s or the 70s which is a vegan way it uses plant membrane and fibers and so vellum modern vellum is actually this very crisp paper it's hard to tear but it's also very hard to write on so at first when i was reading this section about vellum i was like clearly you've never used vellum sir it took me a really long time to be like oh Oh, wait, right. The Magna Carta is on vellum. Right. Pigskin. Took me a really long time. Because when you started talking about pigskin, I was like, what? Anyways, I, that section, I really, I found it interesting. Because it's all of these little things, especially when he's talking about how nothing grows on Terra. And most of these people have never seen a pig in their life. Um, But yeah, even that section, because it was this whole dalliance that really didn't end up having a whole lot of point other than this is why this industry is important and somebody just got killed. I was like, oh, oh, okay. Um, the black ships part I found unbelievably interesting. Okay, I think- so now the black ships part I thought was relevant. It was important yes. to the story. It was It was very- not a Les Miserables moment. True. The part that stood out the most to me was that I think in my mind, I think I always just pictured that the psychers, they get psychers in the black ships, they bring them down and they're basically just chucked into an inferno. That's kind of what I always envisioned as well. In fact, I think they actually, the line that he even says in here is something like, uh, let's see, they knew nothing of the ancient harvest of the gifted who had once been destined to form the vanguard of a new humanity, but were now fated to become something just a little more exalted than psychic firewood. So I guess I just kind of pictured it being like this 
like conveyor belt into an oven. So the fact that like, I really, but really what it is, is it was more like a like a cow stockyard. These they're put in there and they're trained and they're indoctrinated and they might go on to join the Adeptus Astartes. They might become uh, sanctioned psychers. They might do all of these different things. Or as my husband always likes to say about stockyards is that cows have this wonderful, comfortable life and then they just have one very bad day. Same with the psychers, they get raised and nurtured and then they have this one very bad day. But at that point they're just thrilled for the bad day. But they're, I didn't they're realize- They're happy to become psychic firewood. <laughs> right. I, I love that realize... line. That was perfect. Yeah, that might become my favorite line for all of 2020 when we do our awards at the end of the year. I guess I didn't realize that there was this entire industry. And I guess as I was reading it, I kept thinking, I was like, oh, of course there is. Of course there's a cottage industry around this. And it was just, I thought that was really nice in a weird way. And I was like, oh, these guys have a nice life. Well, I, okay, one thing I'll say about it is that I knew that there was some way that they, you know, found out who could become a librarian or a sanctioned psyker or work for the Inquisition. I knew that they did that. Like, it wasn't the black ships and it was just like, you know, throwing them all into the wood chipper immediately. I knew that they had to right. kind of sort that out. But I didn't realize how long they kept them around either. I didn't either. Because again, like at first, even when he starts describing it, I was like, oh, even as he was describing it, I was like, oh, okay. So what is this? Like a few months? Oh no, this is years and years. Well, they got to get those thousand souls. Right? I guess they got to get them all willing. Maybe that makes the best souls the willing one. Like in Stardust. Mm. Yeah, I guess maybe. Uh, that was very fascinating to me but the vellum piece i was like oh this is very interesting but i think i would have preferred that like in its own color text or like in a codex or something you know like not within a story because to your point there were a few dalances like that where i was like oh pump the brakes okay oh cool but it kind of ripped you out of the story for a second because well, there was a couple times and it wasn't the vellum one it was a couple of, it was another one for sure because i was like and it talked about revis i was like whoa when did revis get here and i had like to back up because i didn't remember when we switched over because we went through this long diatribe for a while mm -hmm. yes yeah now on the other hand every one of these books chris Ray, i have to give him credit in this and in the Watchers of the Throne books, man, he is shining a spotlight on the leadership of Terra. And what stands out the most to you? How disgusting they are. Oh, my God. So let's talk about, you know, the Magister. Well, let's not oh. actually, because that Magisters. was just... Ugh. So... This is the scene in which he discovers that the Magisters, who are part of the uh, Department of the Astronomicon, are, in fact, conjoined twins who God knows how old they are. And they've been sitting in tanks. And their lives sound miserable. 
having to decode and receive every single shipping notification and message that goes through about it. <sighs> Keeping in mind that Terra cannot grow its own food. Like it is 100% reliant upon all the other worlds bringing it food and supplies and things like that. So what was it like if they got delayed by a few seconds, like half the planet would starve or something like that? Yep. That's a lot of ships going in and out. Yeah. To say the least. Yeah. Like, holy cow. Like, as in, there's no way you could actually see the planet from the sky. I mean, you, if you were flying into Terra, because it'd be just clogged up with ships, like, all the way around. So on one hand, taking that into consideration, I understand why you would keep something like that alive. I understand. But, oh God. There's like no way you can make like a computer that could handle that instead of a living person. Well, you know how much they hate AI. Well, I but, didn't say AI. <laughs> but I mean, it, he does go into that big, that big thing in here too, where he talks about how, look, don't rely on machines. Let a person do it. So it made sense, but... I don't think it's what the emperor had in mind. I don't know, to be honest. No, I you never it, know. Right? And part of me reads it and I'm like, that's pretty Warhammer 40k. But then the other part of me is also like, ew, that's awful. That sounds, that sounds, and when Gorgias, always, always my moral compass, when Gorgias was like monstroso, mm -hmm. I was like, dude, I can't argue with that at all. It was like Insanus, Insanus, monstroso. I was like, you're speaking my language, dude. I, <sighs> Uh, with the skull. <laughs> and that did break my heart when he shoots the container and they go spilling out and he realizes that the one that was less insane basically goaded into killing them because they they are quite done with this job. But you can tell that it must be kosher by the way that they are kept behind a sealed vault that clearly only a few people know about. That kind of gives you your kosher level So there. it's one of those things that when it became revealed what the Magister was, I'm like, so, so clearly, you know, Inquisition was not aware of this, or at least certain members were not aware. Mm -hmm. I mean, who knows what the um, High Lord representative knows? She might, maybe she knows everything. Maybe she knows nothing, you know? Um, but it's one of those things that it's just you expect that on some other planet, you know, one where Terra's not overseeing it, but you almost expect more higher standards out of a throne world. Right. Than that. Which you sweet summer child. I actually had a similar thought, and part of me could hear Crowl saying, This is Terra. Like, I think I made the same reference when we read the carrion throne but it reminded me so much of seven and the unnamed city and how brad pitt was his character was constantly like oh we could do this and we could do this and morgan freeman's like that doesn't work in this city like i kept thinking of that in this too hmm. where i wanted to be optimistic but no and good god the master of the Ast astronomicon yeah. Talk about someone you would expect to be a little more on the up and up. 
But no, he's Ugh. just as disgusting. Ugh. I, it, you know, honestly, I feel as though it's like an onion. Every book, they peel back layers and there's just more and more repugnant. Like, no, oh, that character was pretty bad. Oh, he must have been the worst. Oh, no, he was not the worst. But this you know, guy just makes me wonder if the emperor in a way you know especially after just reading the mechanicum and seeing his foresight from thousands and thousands of years before mechanicum mm-hmm. um really making me think he saw this was going to happen and so things are kind of going and if I'm going to believe that, then I'm going to believe that he has ways of still manipulating some things. And I'm thinking that he's doing this. All these highlights are coming. He's getting ideas in people that the throne is failing because that's maybe it is. Maybe it is. And he wants it to because maybe that's the only way he can come back. <laughs> well, I think that goes back to the conversation about whether or not he's a god. If if you accept that he's a god and he's omnipotent, then yes. Maybe. That's actually been one of the compelling theories I think that's been circling around for a long time is because people are always arguing, like, how did he not t- take one look at Angron and be like, uh, this one needs to be sanctioned because this is ridiculous. Kill him. Because he you loves know, like, his sons. Yeah. Or. Or he knew. This, or did he know? Is this all part of the greater plan? It. I mean, it has to be because you can't. You know, especially after reading Mechanicum, you can't tell me that this guy who killed a dragon right. back in 1200, all right, not 12,000, 1200 AD, took the dragon to Mars, all right, because he knew that in 30,000 years it would spurn the mechanic, the creation of the Mechanicum. You can't tell me that guy did not create these suns, did not foresee their scattering. Because he had to have foreseen it and he had to have been cool with it because it was all part of something else. Because for him to see that far into the future, you can't tell me he didn't foresee the scattering and he didn't foresee what each one of them would do. So they actually, they address part of that slightly. I don't know if you remember, it was on page 252 and it's when they talk about the great conundrum of the of the religious uh, aspect of the Imperium, where they talk about um, the beacon, how they are taught that. Um, oh, yeah, beacon, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, he sits upon the throne to power the beacon. And the big conundrum is basically but what did he do before Horus put him on the throne? The devil Horus. So, you know was right. world travel fine before that like this huge conundrum of them and i feel as though with well, the emperor there's so many things like that well right but you know a lot of that is because they're not allowed to know the truth you know because right right you know because they say you know the devil horus and here how his nine primarchs fought against him and these unknown demons well okay um mm-hmm. so they think that the emperor chose to stay in the throne when we all know that's right not, that's not the case that's actually how he's staying alive if you want to consider that right alive no, um, that's a kind of life i guess yep, sorry i was just i scraped my mic um but 
But I think it's I mean, that just, conundrum of he's presented as being this all-knowing, future-looking guy, and yet there's all these gross blind spots, seemingly blind spots in his vision. And I felt as though all of this kind of pointed towards oddly, some of this bullshit is convincing me that he I guess it just goes back to look, he if he's a god, this all has to be in his plan. And if it's not, then he's clearly not a god because holy crap. Considering that, you know, I, from my personal satisfaction and Mechanicum, got a confirmation of how long he has been on this planet. He, if he's not a god, he's a demigod. He's some form of an immortal or a perpetual like Falcon. And therefore, you get him off the throne, he dies, and he can come back. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, because the shaman create him. I can't remember what year the shaman create him. I think there is like a time period in which they do. But yeah, I all of these things kind of keep pointing towards. And, and he, he had to, because you can't tell me this guy, again, who kills a dragon in 1200 AD and plans for the creation of the Mechanicum in 30,000 years does not see this stuff coming. Right. Oh, man, I think we've, like, just solved this problem for both of us here, just talking about this. Especially... Hey, this has actually been very hard for me. <laughs> especially, after, you know, um, so after reading that last Horus Heresy book... Um, especially because, you know, again, like I know I said this in my article about it, it's like, I didn't want to read it. I don't like the Adeptus Mechanicum. Um, I still don't because I just find, I just find it all creepy. That's, that's just me. But more importantly, the book really kind of showed the Emperor's grand vision for things. And mm -hmm. that hit home like, okay, so I really believing now the reason why he wanted to push for a secular society was because he saw all those wars on Terra, those religious wars, and he didn't want that to happen again. He didn't want people to come and worship him or, of course, the Chaos Gods. That's probably the most important. He's going to make him not worship the Chaos Gods anymore. But if he's going to say no to that, he didn't want anyone worshiping him either. Right. That way he's a more even, you know, healed playing field. That way he's not coming in. They're not the gods. I'm the god. It's like right. there's no gods. All right, I have some powers and it's pretty cool, but there's no gods. Right. Even though he... Yeah, so much, it, it's... It's hard, I mean, it's it, really... Mm. It's odd to say. It's odd, to, it's odd for me, and I don't know why I have such a hard time admitting that he might be a god. And it's not just because, like, not like this book affects my personal religion or anything right. like that. It's just so, you know, contradictory. Like, when you're reading all of this... And you're reading the Horus Heresy, especially in the very beginning when they're just like, no, 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 he's a man. He is not a god. And then you get to the Mechanicum and you're just like, okay, you've been saying for the last eight books that he is not a god. He is a man. And then you show this. How am I supposed to, to take this now? You know, and it, so it just kind of makes me, you know, doubt everything about the saints and what their purpose is, which then, you know, gets me on this weird twist about well, how's this going to affect Reboot Gilliman because... He's believed all of his life that his father is a man because he was told this and how that would totally change his perspective on everything. In a way, I'm just like, I'm kind of like, maybe this rift, you know, really is the, 
Now, I don't want to say sign of the end times, but the sign of the end of the emperor staying on the throne. Right. I think that's what they're moving toward. Again, my quote, Revelation 2.10. Look it up. Um, Bible humor. Uh, so <laughs> Because the Warhammer 40k universe has no Bible humor. Yeah, none at all. Um, there was not a line in um, Cal and Calgar's siege where Marnius Calgar thought he was going to be killed by the orcs, where he said, "Father, into your hands I commend my spirit." No Bible humor. They literally have the Book of Revelation in this book. Um, no Bible. It's humor. odd to me, though. The weird thing to me is that the gross incompetency and. Um, corruption on Terra is convincing me that he must be a god and that this is all part of the plan <laughs> that's so I got to the end of this book and I actually had this very distinct thought because at the end the beacon goes out right so I had this very distinct thought where I was like oh okay so he is a god wait a minute which yeah can I say how much I liked that this book explained why the beacon went out? I had the same thought where I was like, oh, huh. And then my second thought was, you asshole. Because there's the whole conversation when they first get in there and Crowell is like, oh, they were arrogant. They thought they could contain it. And you're like, well, that can't be it. There clearly has to be something. Oh, no, they were arrogant and thought that they could contain it. Because remember, he keeps saying he's like, it could be contained. And Crowell's like, uh, no, it really yeah, can't be. So it can be contained. Very ignorant. It's like, this is how it's been going for the last 10,000 years. It's fine. Right. Well, I think like, I think in his heart, because he, remember he said, he's like, this is not our first rodeo. Right. This is your first rodeo of Cadia falling. Just so we're clear. So I have to say, it's kind of weird reading this right now. Because I've been saying that coronavirus is not our first rodeo. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in this book that parallels. Ah, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So, switching gears slightly, let's talk about the other, oh my god, moment in this book. The failsafe. Crowell's fortress. Because this leads into another broader conversation about this book. Kral's fortress is under attack. Spinoza can't figure out why Revis is doing what he's doing and withdrawing to this poor, this tiny little poorly defended room that's not even near their power structure or anything. It's like the woman who's being chased by the psycho who runs upstairs. Yeah, like, exactly. Go, bitch? <laughs> exactly. And I do like when she sasses him and she's like, this is all pointless. What are we doing? And then he reveals. Well, I think her, like, one thing she said, she, she's like, did you even have a plan when you decided this? And he's like, yes, I had a plan. So let's start with the harder question. Do you think it was the right decision? Oh. I think they would have all died if they hadn't done it. Right. Which, arguably, makes it the right decision. It's really a 
very typical Inquisition, almost Ordo Hereticus. We got to, you know, break some eggs to make an omelet. Right. And this time it was a third of the eggs. I think, too, it was the idea that, look, ultimately, you guys are expendable. You are just the peasants. We're important. We're named characters. Um, Huck had a name. <laughs> yes, but some one of the named characters had to die. Her skirts were red. That's what they never described. Um, they... <sighs> It did feel very callous. It did feel very... On one hand, I want to argue that of course it was necessary because they had to survive. But really, did they? Crowell wasn't there. He's arguably the most important man in the room. He's the one with all the information. Right. I mean, because Rivas and Spinoza came back with nothing they got sent on wild goose chases which leads me to my next question could this all have been avoided the only way it could have avoided it is if he'd let it go after the first book if he'd taken spinoza's advice and be like well the the xenos is dead so it case closed it's over we stopped you know and sad thing is this plan was so bad I don't even know exactly what they were trying to do in the long run, to be totally honest. I don't really either. I mean, other than fix the throne. Right. But but that failed grossly because, you know, the Eldar all look the same. And And we can trust the Dark Eldar. Well, they all look the same. They're all the same thing, aren't they? Right, right, right. Um, And they're a Xenos pet, too. Yeah. So... I mean, yeah, arguably, yes. Had he let this go, or maybe had they done better research, maybe had they not... Because if you think about it, right, both things end up being very clear traps. Actually, arguably, all three of them end up going on a trap. But Spinoza and Rivas, Rivas, I think, perhaps the most goes on what is biggest of traps right and he even says that later where he's like this was all clearly bs clearly and it was his mistake right but the thing that i couldn't let go of is i was like you know these are like rookie mistakes that crowell sent his people out on these things was it because of his obsession and the fact that he was so desperate i think Crowell didn't want to let it go because even though he's very gray, he still had the opinion that even if a high lord is involved, they are not above the law. And um, I think he expected better of them to maybe do a little more research on their own before they went. Well, that's oddly his one very strict thing, right? Where he's like, you don't we do not truck with the Xenos, period. Well, oh, we needed their expertise. No, we didn't. Mm-hmm. We need nothing from them. Which I bet he's going to love when Reboot comes up. When what? Oh, and remember. Reboot and his Eldar girlfriend. Um, but he has this, I- this idea that he just 
can't let go. And, you know, one of the things to me that really stood out is when they're all briefing right before they go to the Hollow Mountain. Mm -hmm. Everything that happens in the Watchers on the Throne is happening. There is fire and lightning falling from the ceiling, from the sky, rising up from the earth. Dogs and cats living together. Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. None of that matters because there's a Xenos plot. And he's so obsessed with the idea that this is all combined. When he comes home and he's pissed off that they've gone to this fail safe, I, on one hand, I understand the anger. Well, it's like but I told you earlier today, it's like me coming home and my kids have wrecked the house. And I'm like, what the hell happened here? And that's. See, I took that as like, that would be that your kids messed up. Your kids should not have messed the house. This, to me, was like, dude, you got us into this situation and then fucking ignored our calls for help. You just decided that you had more important stuff. This is every bit on your soldiers as it is on Revis's and Spinoza's. I couldn't see it that way because I could totally see him coming home and just being like, what'd you do? You know know what? You need an Inquisition tattoo next time we get tattoos. (laughs) Congratulations, you're thinking inquisitorial now. I don't like skulls. Just get the eye then. I'm just saying, you're thinking like an inquisitor there now. there's no eye in team? What? 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 I don't what know. Is going, what is going on? I don't know, they messed up his house. That's true. It's like I left That's you, true. I left you alone for five minutes. That's true. And there's That's dead people everywhere. Yeah, I that really did piss me off because I was like, dude, this is on you as well. So, my goodness. So, let me ask you this question since we're talking. You're like Team Spinoza. I am. She's a badass bitch. I I, she's not. I can't forgive her for murdering that junkie. Look, she's not Lotara Saren, but she's batting in the same league. Okay, look, no one's ever going to be. The woman who not only sasses Ankron, but kicks she, him out of a hatch. She tricks him and kicks him out of an airlock so that by God they can march on Terra without him fucking it up. That's why she does it. So no thing's ever going to beat that. And her BFF is Karn. Um, but she's like really close. She has the Imperial Fist on speed dial. So yeah, I am very much Revis. Also, I have a very big soft spot for Revis. I like Revis um, a lot. I just so let me ask you this since we're talking about his obsession who was right in the end they come into the beacon they determine that the beacon is under attack and shit is fucked and Spinoza says we have to save the beacon and Kral says nope not as important as the Eldar thing okay that broke my heart that broke my heart. I was so, I mean, texted you, like, when that happened. Like, I was just so sad. I was like, okay, Kral, like, you have uh, officially lost sight. And so it made me feel a little better at the end when it was coming back to him. And he realized that he was under the influence of this place and the things that he said and things that he did. And he was like, that was not the right thing to say. I should not have said that. I should not have done that. I lost focus. So to me, almost in the end, it was almost a little more endearing. It's like, oh my god, an inquisitor that admits he makes mistakes. I didn't know they existed. 
Um, kind of. And yet in the end, when he's talking to Spinoza, he kind of dresses her down. And he even like in his internal in his monologue, he's or the the third person perspective talks about how look he had a mutiny and he has to deal with this the fact that they directly disobeyed him i thought he was doing that because that's what's expected of him right that could be you know it's one of those things it's just like look there was a mutiny but i understand it but let's not make this a habit okay because she even says that when she diso she disobeyed like you know her former master she would have been shot on sight like, oh easily and what did he do he's like fine you do what you want and he just leaves which says to me he's a little bit more you know that he was still in his faculties that he wasn't going insane um just under the madness of obsession right and i think that got heightened being with all those psychers because he talked about like how like good his body felt and then when all that sensation went away, it was like, oh, well, no, remember like, all the drugs that he had in his system? There was because that too. Arunian had given him all that drug cocktail because the me the lunacy starts when they're back in the um, Citadel. Remember when he's like, I figured it all out because he's like clapping his hands to make his points and stuff. And you know what he reminded like, me of? Sherlock, BBC Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Similar, yes. I mean, just because there was so many scenes where... Um, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's Sherlock Holmes, he would... Lord British. Yes, he would go on one of his benders because, yes, mm -hmm. Sherlock Holmes did do that. And he would be, like, all wired and be like, okay, I know this. This is what we're going to do. And everyone else is just staring at him like, dude, like, can we settle it down here? And he's like, no, I've got it. We're going to do this. So that kind of reminded me of that. And even, honestly, more I'm thinking about it, he was being Sherlock Holmes because he's smarter than everybody else in the room. He knows what's most important, and you guys are all holding him back. And you're all betraying right. him if you're not going with him. Do and then again, it's... like BBC Sherlock Holmes, when he comes down off that opioid hit, opium hit, he's just like, oh my god, I didn't mean any of that. And everyone's like, we know, we know, we're, we're used to it. Right. You know what it almost reminded me of a little bit? Do you remember in the Magos, the guy who gets the brain worms? Mm. Yeah. That was so and how, sad. Yeah. I actually... And how he's constantly obsessed I, with finding this guy. I thought about that a lot, actually, while reading this book. We've talked about this before. No job in the Imperium has a super great pension plan. <sighs> you know, in the... I mean, to borrow the quote of, right, you either die the hero or live long enough. I think a lot of these Inquisitors you just get so obsessed with the conspiracy and granted he doesn't have the brain worms but this xenos plot has so offended him it's gotten so deep into his craw he can't let it go i think it's because he Almost. looked directly into the demon or the xenos's eyes and it spoke to him they even talked about how how much it'll affect you Mm -hmm. and he admits that at one point in time he, he's like he can't tell if it's because of what happened right. with the xenos or, or not or if this is just like who he is or mm -hmm. this is what tara has made him he doesn't know right and and, and also in a way you know because he is dying he knows he is maybe he wants to make this his one last big send-off one last be. big you know witch hunt which again I just kept conjuring that guy 
from the Magos or from the um, Eisenhorn series mm. in my head. Yeah. I just kept thinking about him. I was like, oh, God. Or do you remember in the Magos, there's that story about the guys, the people who are still fighting the good fight? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what it reminded me of. It's so one of my much. favorite short stories, even though it's. Mine too, actually. Super dark and sad. Well, I mean, what else is a Warhammer 40k universe going to have besides dark and sad? Pretty much. We don't do happy uh, here. <laughs> I mean, I still attest that Honor Bound probably has, like, the closest thing to a happiest, happy ending. Okay, this and that is even, true. that even ends on a, all right, let's go back out and fight some more <laughs> uh, note. So... But yeah, again, I think it just proves. And the reason that that's one of my favorite short stories is that it kind of shows that, again, not a great retirement plan in Warhammer 40k because all the shit you've seen, you're never going back to just living a normal life again. And Crowl, I was just, I was heartbroken. I was disappointed because I honestly did expect when they're sitting there and Spinoza stops and she says, this is the beacon I really expected him to be like, oh shit, you were totally right. But he just couldn't let it go. And I think if he wasn't on all those drugs and if the the psyker environment hadn't been affecting him, he most, I believe he would have been like, you're right. This is the beacon. Exactly. And it's not until or the beacon he, is literally exploding that he's like, oh crap. Or he would have been at least like, let's divide and conquer. Mm -hmm. Instead of being like, you do you, I'm going to tackle the bigger problem. Mm -hmm. So what's next for Crowell and Spinoza? Where do they even go from here? Well, obviously he knows where the delegates were sent. Whatever that is. Do, can I ask, I'm going to ask the very blunt question. Do you care? Yes, I do. And that's okay. because I want to know what the hell they were thinking. Like, what was the original plan? Right. Where? where okay, that's think, fair. What did y'all think was going to happen? Yeah. Like, what was your end game here? Like, what was the point of bringing the Xenos? Because that just blows my mind what they thought the Xenos was going to do with the throne. First of all, did, well, you, did you think the Custodius was going to let it in? Well, apparently, yes. So I think, so it means, okay. Here's the part where I'm like, oh, I don't know that I care. Because clearly they invited the Xenos, the Eldar in, and they thought that he was going to whip out his magic toolkit and fix the throne. Okay, cool. I mean, again, if your engine makes a weird noise, you take it to mechanic and they fix it. So I think they honestly thought that by bringing this monstrous creature onto the planet, he was just going to be like a mechanic and fix the thing that i understood all of that but the fact that there's this delegation and there's more of them out there i guess i'm par- i guess i'm casually curious about what, what exactly they're gonna do what's but the rest of the plan apparently because he was a he's because um the master of the astronomicon even said it was unfortunate but we had other contingencies like yes what like like what guys like what's your plan here guys like i don't so, care who was and- involved i just want to know what the hell they were doing Here's the other question I would ask. Are we certain? Like, did they grab one dark Eldar, but then the other two that they sent off were like regular Eldar? Is, is it just going to be out 
find are we just gonna find out that it's Gulliman's girlfriend and she's like yeah I can't fix your throne but I fixed your Primark because we it's it's gonna be rebooted him <laughs> it's gonna be Yvraine and who's that oh my god who's that other like high Eldar lord Ugh, he was in Legion mm-hmm that one that guy yeah the guy's been around for ever oh god I can't think of his name he's in the cabal yeah all you need to know anyway he's in unremembered empire too oh my god i can't think of his name i actually just made a joke about him a few days ago too it'll come back to me in a second but anyways that that guy guy. (laughs) that fucking guy um i don't really i mean i guess i would be interested if they did give it to them that they're like "Mm, oh see now you now you're making like so much sense but if it's the, that if those two were the other Eldar. Right. And again, they'll go reboot your Primark, but there's not like. I don't know why that's still so funny to me, but it is. Because I've had a lot of alcohol tonight and it's been a long week. Maybe, um, maybe that's why I still find it funny. I'm, I'm a little giggly now and I also look sunburned. Um, so I don't know. Like if, if it's that, I'll be interested. But if it's dark Eldar and there's more dark Eldar fuckery. Because then it's like, you guys are just being stupid now. This is not even interesting. You're just being dumb. Yeah. I'm not really necessarily sure that I'm interested in that particular piece. I am, however, deeply invested in where Spinoza goes from here. Because he's technically still her master. She can't just go find a new one. She can't just call the Inquisition and be like, yeah, my master left. Can I get a new one? Not quite how that works. So is she just in a holding pattern? Like, does she and Revis just have to kind of sit there and twiddle their thumbs while they wait for Crowell to go on his walkabout? Well, I mean, I don't think it was a very long walkabout. He found that letter. I'm pretty sure he's going straight back. Well, but remember, he says, he even says, he's like, well, this is a trap. Off we go. So is he? Is it going to be one of those things where he goes off on the adventure and then he's like, oh, shit, I need help. And he sends a distress signal and ah, they come to the rescue. I don't know. As long as uh, Gorgias is with them, I'm cool with that. Oh, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Um, that was also my first question, too, is I was like, where's Gorgias? And then when I discovered that he was with them, I was like, okay, we're fine. Um, I Okay, that was also this... another thing that I found hysterical when Crowell got back and saw that his kids just messed up his house. It was when he was, like, yelling at them, and he was just like, it's a good thing that Gorgias is being repaired right now, because he'd be very upset. I love it. I can just imagine Gorgias being like, this is in disarray. This is ruined. The curtains. <laughs> like, again, Gorgias is the literal best. Uh, Play-Doh references and all. I mean, come on, how can you beat that? Uh, I love him. So and I'd also loved it. They were talking about you know, dead, really old languages. Like I don't remember how they even wrote French, but they're like French and English, Mandarin, right? Right, Mandarin, and yet their High Gothic is our dead language. <laughs> yeah, there was. I laugh. So my degree is actually in historic linguistics. So. I laughed really hard about that because it made me my degree is fucking useless, you guys. Um, just so we're clear, I know this. Uh, the Avenue Q song, What the Hell Do You Do with a BA in English? 
it's a little hard sometimes. Well, I have um, a BA in English, so <laughs> mine was in literature. <laughs> it's far more useful. True. Mm. Um, you know what? You go into technology and become a product manager and judge everybody's bad grammar. That's what you do with it. Um, but that kind of stuff, like it, it, it make it warms my little heart because there's that irony there where you're like. <laughs> You kids are all speaking Latin. This is amazing. Uh, Especially when they talk. I don't know why, but I do like when they reference. And I liked the idea, by the way, that of all the literature that would survive and that he would have in his personal collection, the book of Revelation. Because it seems seems so very apt with the warp, with the rift and all that's going on right now. Maybe a little too on the nose, but in the most delightful way. Hmm, was the Emperor John? Oh, God. Hmm? So, we... I would like to point out... I mean, he was already... We've already been proven in Mechanicum he was St. George. So, he could have been John. True. Right. He's all the apostles. Spoiler alert. All the um, saints? That's him. Pretty much. Even St. Francis. Of the Assisi's. Uh, <laughs> he's the patron saint of deaf animals and pets. Um, the, okay, yeah. the best saint. Anyway. Uh, excuse me, that's St. Christopher, obviously. So now I'm trying to imagine um, the emperor having pets. Don't, don't go to a saint war with a recovering Catholic, madam. So here's the funny thing. I ain't going to go near you Catholics and your saints. That's right. Take this shit very seriously. So I don't have my copy of our next book that we're going to read because my husband's reading it right now. But but I do. Just so we're clear, it'll be the third Chris Rate book we've read in three months. I like how you didn't even look at your hand with the watch on it. (laughs) In three months. (laughs) I mean, it'd be one thing if you weren't wearing a watch, but I know you are. So anyway, but yes. We're reading yet again another Chris Rate book. I, I'm sorry. Like, basically, when I picked this up, uh, well, actually, no, I didn't get it at the celebration. I had to order it like a peasant, but I still have it. I texted Jen. I was like, you know, I think we need to bump our list because yeah, this just came so... out. And, and we rarely ever read stuff right when they first come out. So here we go. I'm very excited. I'm making a giant mess over here of my books. To say that we were originally going to read the fabulous, the first book in the Fabulous Bill series. Which we still will, eventually. We still will, because we love Josh Reynolds, and we don't love Fabulous Bill, but we're very curious about him. Um, I don't even, the cover, I just look at the cover and I want to, he has the most punchable face. Um, Well, I mean, I think the cover actually does him very much justice. Hold on. Because in... The Fulgrim Horse Heresy novel. What was his nickname? Do you remember? Oh, I don't remember what it was. The Spider. Look at the cover again. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. He just, again, it's, I mean, you just want to punch him. So anyways, we are going to read this one, but we both got back from the Black Library celebration <laughs> with our copies of our favorite romance ever. And it's the best power couple. They are. Sorry, Severina Rain. This is the power couple. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> They're not even technically a couple. Um, 
I was going to make a clan of the cave bear joke, but then that was a little too deep of an 80s cut. So we're just going to go from there. That is the obscure. (laughs) That is how you say the obscure. Um, so, but it will be the third Chris Rate book. So I, I don't know if we're gonna have to change ourselves to the Chris Rate podcast at this point. Nah. Um, nah, we just need to read our power couple. So that'll be our next book, and we're really excited for it. It's uh, as Carrie said, it's one of the new ones we don't typically read yeah, one as we, soon we as get, it comes out. Yeah, because we're usually when a new one comes out, we're already reading like something else, so it's like another month before we get to it. So, well, and then we have like last month's new release and the month before that's new release that we have to get to before we right. get to this one. And so look at us. It's kind of cool that we're Johnny kind on of, the spot, kind of like getting caught up here. I know, this. right? So, yeah. Yeah, we kind of are. So go us. That's right. Um, Stop it. So you want to take us out, Carrie? Yeah, I think I'm going to put this down now. <laughs> you, sh- you should do the thing I now. It's getting why. awkward. I don't have my copy. It'd be like Vanna White. Okay, man. This isn't as bad as our Wine and Warhammer weekend, but it's not too far from it. Which is kind of yeah. awesome in our in our little way because we were sad Dude, about Adepticon, damn it. Okay, that that was also a Chris Rate book. So I <laughs> was that Voltaterra? No, I think it was the first Watchers of the Throne book. I think it was Carrion Throne. No, no, it wasn't. Um, it was. Uh, it, I'm ninety percent certain it was the Watchers of the Throne book. So I guess what we're saying is we love Chris Rate. But he, he drives also us drives to us to drink. <laughs> All right. So anyway, before we get even sillier with this and make really bad jokes about drinking for the emperor and stuff. So thank you all so much for listening to the Warhammer 40k book club episode regarding Vaults of Terra, Hollow Mountain by Chris Rate. Be sure to join us for our next book, The Watchers of the Throne, The Regent Shadow by Chris Rate. Hey, this won't actually have Reboot Yellowman in it. Hey! Hey! We are an unofficial book club and not affiliated with the Black Library or any of its affiliates. You can find both the vidcast and podcast on our website, wh40kbookclub.com. If you like this episode, please like, subscribe, give a review, and all those things to the vidcast on YouTube or the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Our site also has articles about our adventures in reading other Warhammer 40k books and short stories outside of the book club books, so please stay a while. And read from a crag. Good night, everybody. Good night. book club was hosted by jen bozier and me recording and editing of both the vidcast and podcast were done by me the book club questions and discussion format were done by jen and all of our music is by jingle punks the warhammer 40k book club is a warhammer llc production this is a voxcast that even he kato sicarius would approve